Good morning and welcome if you're new to the valley or just new to to Rockfish. What we like to do here is walk through books of the Bible and try to figure out what God has said to us through the author's writing as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. We believe that the Bible is the word of God and so we want to see what God has said to us in his word. Right now we're in the book of Mark and this morning we're going to be in chapter 1. And we're going to try to get through all of verses 21 through 34. You can find it there in your pew Bibles. I think around 700. That might be completely wrong. I can't quite remember. Uh, But if you're not as ambitious as as I think, and you don't want to find it in the pew Bible, the words will magically appear behind me, and you you can read them there. So to catch you up just a little bit, Uh, Mark writes to answer this question, who is Jesus? And it's the question underneath every pericope, every paragraph, every sentence, every word of the book. Who is Jesus? And he answers it in chapter 1, verse 1. He tells us that Jesus is the Messiah, that is the one sent to save people from their sins. He's the Messiah of God. He is God the Son. That's who Mark thinks Jesus is, that is the miracle-working Son of God. He then sets out to prove this thesis by walking us through a mosaic or a highlight reel of sorts of Jesus's life. The narrative quickly shifts from one event to another in order to bolster Mark's argument for Jesus being God himself coming to save man from his sins. Thus far in chapter 1, we've seen Jesus fulfill prophecy, be baptized, overcome temptation in the wilderness, proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand, and that men can receive the kingdom by repenting and believing the good news of the gospel by following him. Jesus, being the Son of God, being God the Son, has authority to make this proclamation, this call to repentance and belief. Repentance is just a word. It means turning from doing things my way or the way that I've done them and towards doing things Jesus' way or God's way. It means uh, stop doing things according to what I think is best and to start doing them according to what God thinks is best. Jesus' authority comes from who he is. It's bound up in his person. Maybe you want to think of the the president of the United States or a police officer. Uh, They have authority and and a lot of authority in the president's case, but his authority doesn't come just from who he is. I mean, he didn't like uh, President Obama didn't have the authority of the president until he became president. Same thing with a police officer doesn't have the authority to enforce the law until he put on that uniform, until he was hired as a person of authority to a position of authority. Jesus is he's different than that. His authority comes not from his office, but from his person, from his identity. His authority is not derived, but divine. And what we're going to see this morning is Jesus exercise his authority as God the Son over every sphere of reality. We will see that indeed Jesus has authority in every realm. Our text is going to point out three of those, that Jesus has authority in the social realm. And we'll look at verses 21 through 22 to talk about that. He has authority in the supernatural realm. We'll look at 23 through 27 in the second parts of verses 32 and 34. And that Jesus has authority in the physical realm. And we'll see that in verses 29 through 34. 
I love puns and I, I love fantasy novels. And so if, to help you remember a little bit, I've titled this Lord of the Realms, right? So uh, you can enjoy that pun to yourself a little bit. Maybe you hate it, but I love them. So Lord of the Realms, Jesus has authority in every realm. Uh, before we get started, uh, let's, let's pray together, though. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace to us this morning. We thank you for the fact that you've created us all in your image and that we are all infinitely valuable in your sight. Valuable enough that you would come to earth in the form of a man and die in our place for our sins, for our uh, mistakes, for our rebellion, and offer to us your perfect life. We thank you that by faith we can be united to you in your resurrection so that we no longer need to fear death, but that we can look forward to the death of death because of the death you died on the cross. Father, help us to experience your grace to us through the preaching of your word today. Help us to be obedient to what you have said. Change us by your spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 21, and they went into Capernaum. First, we should point out that the they here is Jesus and the disciples that are now following him, right? He told some people to follow me. They're following him and they're on their way to Capernaum. Where, where is Capernaum? Oh, it's a city. It's located on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, which is around about where Jesus called these fishermen to himself. So Jesus and the guys, they get to Capernaum. And in the second part of verse 21, immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Both of these words are a little bit dated. They're not really uh, part of our culture, right? So we're going to define both of them. First, the Sabbath is a Jewish day of worship. And it runs from Friday evening until Saturday evening. In the synagogue, it's a lot like a local church building is today, like the building we're in now. It's just an assembly, assembly hall wherein the scriptures were read and taught. And there's really only like one temple that was in Jerusalem, but, but synagogues were established wherever 10 or more Jewish males, 13 years of age or older, lived. And the Jews used the synagogue for worship and for education and for community gatherings give you all that information to just make the point that Jesus goes into the assembly hall or the synagogue while people are assembled there, right? There are people in it. He doesn't just go in and it's vacant. Nobody's in there. He's just hanging out. No, there are people there. And usually synagogues would have an official that were in charge of them. They were called the ruler of the synagogue and uh, position had all kinds of responsibilities. But one of the responsibilities was not to preach, or to expound the Torah or the Old Testament. Which meant that the Sabbath teaching was left to the, the laity or the people that were in the room. And on this particular occasion, the teaching fell to Jesus. So Jesus and his friends that were formerly fishermen, now disciples, they roll into the local synagogue and he starts teaching. And, and look at what happens next in verse 22. And they, that's the people that were there, were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. Notice here, Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus taught, but only that the people are astonished at his teaching and more particularly at his authority. 
We're going to see this type of thing a lot in Mark because he's more concerned with the person of Jesus than the subject of his teaching. If we want to know uh, the gospel or what the teaching of Jesus consists of, we're directed to its embodiment in Jesus the teacher. Mark shows us who Jesus is by what he does. Do you think we need to ask, why are the people so astonished and, and what's so special? And the text tells us it's the authority of Jesus that has astonished the people. Unlike the scribes, Jesus' authority is not derived but divine. His authority isn't found outside of himself, but it's wrapped up in himself. It comes from himself. Jesus' authority is his own. It flows from his person. He is the Messiah, the Christ. He is God the Son, the fulfiller of prophecy. The mighty one that John the Baptist wasn't fit to untie his sandals. He's the one with whom the Father is well pleased. He's the sinless one that brings the kingdom of God. His authority is astonishing because it comes from his person. It's not like the scribes. We should ask, what is a scribe? A scribe is designated as an expert in the Old Testament or in the Torah, and it combined the offices of professor, of teacher, of moralist, and of a lawyer in that order. Their knowledge and their prestige reached legendary proportions, especially in the first century. I mean, on occasion, they would be even more considered more important than the high priests. Only scribes, apart from a few select others, were able to enter the Sanhedrin, which is the, the Jewish Supreme Court. Commoners would defer to scribes as they walked through the streets. The first seats in the synagogues were reserved for the scribes, and people would stand up when they entered a room. They'd later also be called rabbis. Many were Pharisees, while few others were Sadducees and others priests. These men were the religious and social elite because of their station. Scribes were greatly respected. They were greatly revealed. And it was considered a great honor to be instructed by a scribe. I mean, they're kind of a big deal, right? They're, they're like community celebrities with a high degree of education. I tried to think of an illustration that involved a politician, and the best I could come up with was Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? People kind of respect him. He was a celebrity, and he also worked in the political realm a little bit, multi-talented. These guys are a big deal. Now, there's no direct conflict with Jesus here, but from this point forward in Mark, both synagogues and scribes, for the most part, will play an oppositional role to Jesus. Synagogues will appear another half dozen times as places where, and as we're about to see, where demons are present, where there is antagonism from the religious folks, where there is hardness of heart and persecution for Jesus and his followers. The synagogues and the scribes are opposed to Jesus for a number of reasons. But one of which is that they want to preserve their own power. And the gospel that Jesus is preaching and teaching upsets what's become their status quo or the way they've always done things. Jesus' authority and his teaching flips everything upside down. And the scribes and those that they're teaching, they don't like it. See, the message of the gospel threatens their power. Their power to get their own way. Their power to feel superior to others. Their power, they think anyway, to save themselves as really good people. 
Church, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled here. The message of the gospel threatens your power. Threatens the power that you use to get your own way. It threatens the social power you feel when uh, the good things that you do make you feel like you're better than others. It feels that threatened perceived power to save yourself. In fact, the gospel doesn't just threaten your power. It calls you to renounce all of your power and trust solely in Jesus' power. It calls you not to look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. The gospel makes your life no longer about you. In synagogues, we will see, turn out to be a place infested with the demonic and people that are practicing salvation by works. People that are there for the wrong reasons. Let me ask you, why are you at this assembly this morning? Why are you part of this fellowship? So you can exercise some kind of power or control over others? So you can have some kind of social power and go out into the community and put on that spiritual letterman's jacket that said, I went to church this week and so I'm doing better than you are. So you can feel like you've earned your salvation, done something to save yourself or make yourself worthy or acceptable. Jesus' authority calls you to repent and believe the gospel. To turn away from your power and trust in his power. That's resurrection power. It's the power that raises dead men and women. It's the power of the gospel. It calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves. To look out for what's best for everyone else. It calls us to renounce our power and to trust in Christ. So ask yourself that question. Am I here because I want power? Because I want to earn my own salvation? Because I want to control something? Or am I here because I'm astonished at who Jesus is? Because I'm astonished at his teaching. Am I threatened by, angered towards, or subversive of Jesus' teaching? Or do I submit to it? Friends, we ought be astonished at the authority of Jesus. We have to stop believing that we're smarter than God, turn from our way of doing things, and believe in Him and do it His way. We need to believe that gospel that Jesus lived in our place, died in our place, and resurrected, defeating death so that we might be saved by grace through faith in Him. Jesus calls us away from seeking power and oppressing others and into seeking his power and building others up. Jesus exercises his authority as God the Son over the social realm. He has authority in every realm. Indeed, he's Lord of the realms. Next, we see Jesus exercise his authority over the supernatural in verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. 
so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Later, when Jesus has many oppressed by demons brought to him, we're told in the second part of verse 32, he casts out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. We see that immediately, that's Mark's favorite word, right? We see it over and over again. Immediately, there is a man with an unclean spirit. That's another word for demon cries out. He asked Jesus some questions. What do you want? Have you come to destroy us? Jesus simply tells the unclean spirit, shut up and get out of him. And the demon obeys. This pattern continues throughout the rest of the book. Jesus tells demons to be quiet and to come out of people. I do want to point out, Jesus isn't wearing all black. He's not carrying a black suitcase. He's not outfitted with holy water or holding a cross in front of him. He doesn't have a fancy priestly scarf on. I don't really know what that's called, but at any rate, he's not wearing one. There's no spell. There's no magical chant. This is all for those of you that have seen The Exorcist. See, it just doesn't work that way. Jesus exercises demons or tells the demonic or evil forces what to do merely by the power of his word. This is really the first test of Jesus's authority. The kingdom of God is going head to head with this unseen ultimate reality. It's going head to head with the power structure of evil. And beginning with this story, the exorcisms in Mark depict this conflict between the kingdom of God and the dominion of the evil one. Between the kingdom of God and those held captive by unclean spirits. The inbreaking of God's kingdom in Jesus first begins, according to Mark, not in the human arena, but in the cosmic arena. Jesus proves that he has authority in the supernatural realm. The agents of evil obey him because they know who he is. And so they become the second party in Mark to acknowledge Jesus's identity. Earlier, it was the father's voice at his baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now it's the voices of demons. This is the Holy One of God, they say. They're announcing his divine sonship. The great irony here is the demons know that Jesus is God the Son, but men do not yet understand his identity. This helps us to answer our next question. Why on earth does Jesus command the demons to remain silent? The text tells us he wouldn't permit them to speak. This command to secrecy is often referred to as the messianic secret. And I think an adequate explanation of the command to silence appears to require three components. First, on a practical and a strategic level, it was necessary for Jesus to silence messianic utterances about himself since these carried connotations of military deliverance. Not only were such connotations inappropriate to his mission, but publication of the title Messiah or an equivalent would have invited some swift intervention from the Roman Empire. Moreover, Jesus rejects any announcement of his person and of his missions by demons or those opposed to God's kingdom. Secondly, it appears to derive from the profile of the servant of the Lord, to which Jesus consciously patterns his life and ministry after. 
the Psalms spoke of the righteous one being hidden. And the idea comes to its fullest expression in the servant hymns of the book of Isaiah. Where hiddenness becomes a defining element of the servant's mission. The prototype of the servant of the Lord appears to have exerted the strongest possible influence on Jesus' ministry. No other figure, whether Abraham or Moses or Samuel or one of the kings or the prophets, no other figure corresponds as closely to Jesus nor influenced his ministry as profoundly as the servant of the Lord. Lastly, Mark employs this theme for his own Christological purpose. Namely, that until the consummation of Jesus' work on the cross, all speculation about his, him and his work is premature. Only on the cross can Jesus rightly be known for who he is. Until the confession of the centurion on the cross, while Jesus is on the cross at the end of Mark, everything that's said about Jesus is either premature or false. Thus, strategically and typologically, Jesus, the, the, that's what motivates Jesus in his life, and it's what motivates Mark to write things down the way he wrote them down. So that all these elements would cohere to show us why Jesus is telling the demons and those, uh, those that will heal later to be silent about who he is. Note also that the demons are silenced as they call Jesus the Holy One of God. This not only confirms his sonship that the father uh, spoke of in verse 11, but it points us back to the book of Judges. Some of you are going, we just went through the book of Judges. Why are we going back there? But it points us back there into Samson in particular. Samson is the only other person in the Bible to be called by this title, the Holy One of God. If you remember Samson, he was a mighty warrior and he began to deliver Israel from the Philistines. His strength was unparalleled. It was legendary. It allowed him to conquer all his enemies. And y'all remember he tore a lion in half, killed a bunch of guys with the jawbone of a donkey. It's that Samson that this title points us to. And I think it points us to Samson in order to point us forward to the cross. See, Samson's greatest victory would come at his sacrificial death. Likewise, Jesus' greatest victory comes at his sacrificial death. Remember, the key, one of the key differences, though, is that Samson stayed dead. His story was finished. But with Jesus' burial, in many ways, the story had only just begun. Jesus rules beyond the grave, not just before it. Jesus was the one who became weak, and will save and rule in strength. He's the one that gave up his power and now rules in power eternally. Becoming and continuing as a Christian is about this same pattern. Becoming weak to become strong. Only those who admit that they are unrighteous can receive the righteousness of God. The true and better Samson, the Holy One of God, has come to seek and save what was lost. At this point in Mark, evil recognizes God the Son. And it screams in terror as it obeys His word. We too ought to recognize who Jesus is and obey His word. 
Friends, recognize our great rescuer and obey his word. Jesus exercises his authority over the supernatural realm. He has authority in every realm. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. And she began to serve them. It's the same day now. Jesus and his band of brothers, they leave the assembly after casting out a demon. And they head to Simon, better known as Peter's place. And they get there and they find out that Peter's mother-in-law, that's his wife's mom, is, is very sick. Disciples then tell Jesus about her. Jesus has compassion on her. And he goes to her. He takes her hand in his own hand. He lifts her to her feet and he heals her. When she does what those that have been touched by Jesus do, she serves. Sometimes this verse is taken out of context and is cited in some odd support of relegating women to lesser serving capacities. It can't mean that, though. It could not have connotated the idea of subservience or inferiority in the book of Mark, and therefore it can't uh, mean that now. A text can't mean what it's never meant. Because in Mark, this word for serving is the same word that's used for angels serving Jesus during the temptation. It's also the same word that's translated to serve in chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus declares that the Son of Man comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Serving is the way of Jesus and it's the way of those that attend him. And thus it describes an essential characteristic of the kingdom of God. That Jesus introduces and exemplifies. For Mark, the proper response of one that has been touched by Jesus is to serve them. That is, Christ and his fellowship. Are you serving others? Is your love for God made visible in your relationship with one another? Those that have been saved by Jesus, those that have been served by Jesus, serve. Those that have experienced the mercy of God become merciful. Are you merciful? Blessed are the merciful. Friends, we ought to be on the front lines of fighting injustice and suffering. We need to do more than just talk. Jesus loves the unlovable. He touches the untouchable. And so should we. He saves us, those of us that are in Christ, not because of anything we have done, but according to his mercy. We are here because when Jesus looked at us, he didn't say with cold indifference, give them what they deserve. They brought it on themselves. No, Jesus is the mercy of God. He doesn't just feel for us. But he takes the necessary action to relieve our distress. Friends, we must do likewise. We must enter into the distress of others. This means with both gospel words 
the good news of Jesus Christ and with gospel action, meeting needs. We must enter into the distress of others and take the necessary action to relieve their distress. Jesus exercises his authority as God the Son over the physical realm. Jesus has authority in every realm. He enters into our sufferings. He takes our hands in his own and he heals us personally, communally. He ends our alienation between us and ourselves, between us and one another, between us and God. This gracious, merciful action is irresistible and it's irresistibly attractive. Verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or who were oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Jesus has compassion not only on Peter's mother-in-law, but on all who come to him. This is true spiritually as well. Jesus takes the sickness of sin, that which separates us from God and deserves the wrath of God, upon himself and experiences the wrath of God that we deserve himself so that we can be healed by submitting ourselves to his authority as Lord. He is that suffering servant spoken of long ago in the prophet Isaiah when he writes, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we have esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus entered our brokenness so that he might heal us. He entered your broken life so that he might make you whole. Non-Christian, you can be made whole this morning. You can find true satisfaction, true life by coming to know Jesus, by submitting to the authority of his word. I'd love to love to help you do that. This is good news. It's news that brings joy. Christian, does your life reflect that joy? Does it reflect the joy that the gospel brings? Are you submitting moment by moment to Jesus as the authority in your life? Jesus has authority in every realm. He humbles the proud. He raises up the weak. He casts out demons. He heals the sick. He saves sinners. This is what the great king does. This is why he should have absolute authority in your life, in my life, in every life. Friends, let us behold the authoritative, miracle-working Son of God this morning. Let us fix our thoughts on our wonder-working God as we sing to Him 
the one who works all things together for our good. Let us praise him for the wonders of his glorious grace, his mercy and his love and his power. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that the good news of the gospel is uh, it's what we're saved by and it's what we live this Christian life by. And so, God, I just pray that you would help us to preach this good news to ourselves daily and moment by moment as we seek to become and practice what you've declared us to be, and that is holy. But we thank you that we have relationship with you and we rest in your finished work. It's in your beautiful name that I pray. Amen.